<laughs> Greetings, citizens. I am Toronto's greatest supervillain, Dr. Holocaust, and you are listening to Channel Awesome's podcast, Nerd to the Third Power. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Nerd of the Third Power, your one-stop shop for all things nerdy and awesome. I'm your host, Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Gonzo. With me, as always, in this epic quest of awesomeness is our resident anime goddess, the one, the only, the beautiful, the cat. Cat, how you doing? Oh, you know, just being awesome here. Alright, okay, okay. And, uh, Skyblaze, our resident English person, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Okay, and in our correspondence corner, Multiverse Brian and Projections John, how are you guys doing today? I'm a little tired. I am a little sore. I am a little hungry. I'm a lot of little things to make up one big thing. <laughs> okay. John, how are you this week? Uh, well, I may or may not be coming down with something again, but uh, I am currently trying to fight that off. Bro, bro, fight the power! Yeah, <laughs> fight, fight, fight the power. Yeah, other than that, I'm doing really well. Um, I can't complain. Well, I could complain about a phone call I got earlier. <laughs> in which our podcast's fearless leader reminded me that we were okay, recording Gonzo, today. Okay, enough. It's gross. It's gross. <laughs> he reminded me that we were recording today by shouting certain choice words when I answered the phone in the middle of tutoring my niece with her math homework and thus wound up expanding her vocabulary unintentionally. <gasps> yes, my corrupting influence grows like a cancer. <laughs> Oh, yes, but anyway, we got a good show for tonight. Tonight we are discussing something that uh, was a really big uh, big deal over the holiday break, and uh, so we missed out on it, but now we're going to actually talk about it. And that's uh, the Legend of Korra finale. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be a, a good talk. But, of course, there is procedure to follow, so we're going to start, as always, with Ask a Geek. And our first question here comes from Tina. And she asks, I was wondering how you make your podcast sound so good. My friends and I have tried to record, but it sounds really tinny and fady. And, uh, Tom, I think this is a question that I think you can answer. So, how do you, how do you, how do you make the show? So how do you, how do you do that voodoo that you do so well? Oh. Well, Tina, uh, what I, basically, uh, the way that we do it is everyone records their own portion of the audio locally, uh, on, like, into, like, a wave file on their computer. And then I'll sit in on the call and record everyone's part and what will happen at the end of the show is they'll send me their audio and uh, I will sync that together with my recording. And the advantage of this is the fact that um, one of the issues with recording just a single Skype conversation is you pick up everything. Whenever someone drops out of a call, you pick that up. Whenever someone fades out, you, you have that. And there's no real way to go around and fix that. The advantage is that it's uninterrupted recording when they're recording locally. And then once all the files are sent to me, I'm able to sync it together and make it sound all pretty without all, many of the tropes that I just mentioned. So, in a nutshell, that's basically uh, a long way of... It's a long way around, but it makes for a much better sounding show at the end of the day. Thank you very much for writing in. It also... Uh, another thing that, that affects it is the quality of the equipment that you're using to record. Uh, we each use um, actual 
studio quality mics. You can't really do it with like a gaming headset. Uh, like for example, I'm using a uh, blue snowball with a pop filter. Um, so that's what I'm using. I think Kat is using, what are you using over there, Kat? I have an Audio-Technica, uh, cause that's what I could get uh, with a employee discount at Best Buy. Um, but yeah, I want a Yeti. Well, don't we all? Oh, you mean the microphone. <laughs> Uh, it could go um, either way. Yeah, take it from Gonzo. Don't use, uh, don't use like a gaming headset. For the longest time, my audio on this podcast sounded horrible because I was just using a, a standard little Logitech um, headset. Now I'm using a Rode microphone. It is, uh, hang on, I've got the box right. An NT1A, which bills itself as the world's quietest microphone. I mean, I haven't tried all the microphones in the world, so I can't speak to the truth of that. But it does also have a pop filter. Those are very, uh, very helpful things to have, especially if you're uh, the kind of person who pops their plosives uncontrollably. And um, yeah, it makes all the difference in the world. So yeah, your your equipment is is also a contributing factor. Uh, don't ever 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 use your computer's built-in mic because it will pick up on every single noise that your computer makes, which is more than you think. <laughs> okay, and the next question here is uh, I don't know what his real name is, but he signs it l- the other last time lord, so he can't be all bad. And he asked, to all the Whovians, what do you think of the announcement of the Sixth Doctor finally getting a regeneration story in the Big Finish audios? So, uh, Skyblades, start with you on this one. Well, I'm one of those people that thought that um, Sixie got such a terrible fucking rep back in the day. He's a brilliant actor and a really top bloke as well. Um, And it really sucked that, you know, his quote-unquote regeneration was Sylvester McCoy in a terrible wig. So the fact that he's finally getting an actual story as a send-off is brilliant because he deserves it after all this time. He really, really does deserve it. I'm quite, still quite happy that it's not actually uh, Colin's last time at Big Finish because that would suck, but it's just like, this is how the Sixth Doctor goes out, hopefully with a bang instead of a whimper this yeah, if you if you haven't listened to any of the uh, the Doctor Who Big Finish audios, they handle the Sixth Doctor brilliantly. Like you, if you compare the quality of his stories in the audios to the quality of the stories they had in the TV series, it's like night and day. Why why is that? I wonder. Partially because um, the budget in the time the the mid mid to late eighties where he was um, recording the BBC budget had been slashed massively. And uh, the guy who was in charge of BBC One at the time, you may recognise the name Michael Grade. Um, I, I don't like to kind of spread gossip and so on, but this is actually a matter of public record. Uh, he was dating Colin's ex. Wow. Yeah. While, while, while she was not his ex. They were separated, They, but still technically married they were they were separated they were no longer an item but they haven't gone through the actual procedure yet because i don't know about in america but in the uk getting a decree absolute for a divorce is a pain in the fucking ass depends on where you live in america in some states you can do it in less than a month and going back on a more pleasant uh, train of thought uh in related news this isn't something that he asked about but uh I saw an announcement today that uh, Kate Stewart uh, is getting a yes. unit series at Big Finish. I'm a bit leery about this one because there was a, a series of like unit stories um, that they did before. 
And to be perfectly honest, they were a little bit lackluster in my opinion. So maybe this series will be better. We'll just have to see. And who knows, maybe it, maybe it takes off. Uh, BBC will sign off on the new series, Audio Adventures, and we might get some more adventures with Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant. Well, some people are saying, I wonder if they're going to license the, the Paternoster gang as an audio. Oh, I would enjoy that. Yes! I think it's more likely you'll get them involved in a Doctor Who side project. Yeah, Eccleston was not happy sad. with the way that he was treated by the BBC and by the fan base. Which, considering the reaction to him leaving was vitriol, it, it wasn't a good reflection on the fan base. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't. Because they just went absolutely fucking ballistic for no reason. Maybe if we send him a gift basket. Well, if... <laughs> I'm sorry, we were dicks. It'll have to be a big, Sign big things. gift basket. <laughs> it's full of bananas. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. Okay, and uh, and and uh, our last question here. Here's one from uh, Bobby, and it is for John. And he asks who your favorites for the Oscars this year are. You know, everybody asks me who my favorites for the Oscars are every year, and it's difficult to answer because I don't honestly pay as much attention to the Oscars as people would expect me to. I'm kind of of the opinion that I find it entertaining enough in its own right, but I'm kind of of the opinion that it's it's something of a meaningless dog and pony show. But um, if I had to pick a few favorites for the Oscars, I'm going to guess that uh, Best Picture is most likely going to go to the Grand Budapest Hotel. It may seem like a slightly outside choice for Best Picture winner, but if there is one thing that we have learned from the Academy in recent years and all the scrutiny that it has been uh, put under in recent years, it's that the Academy is mostly made up of old white people. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is a very fun and very entertaining and very good movie, I definitely do recommend it, is mostly a movie about old white people. So I'm going to choose that as what the voters are going to go for. I was just disappointed that the Lego movie didn't even get a nomination. Although yes. their response to that was brilliant. We don't need you to give us an Oscar. We built our own. Hey! <laughs> And you know what? It's awesome. <laughs> because everything is awesome. <laughs> all right. Indeed. And that is all the Ask a Geek questions that we have for this week. As always, you can send them to us in the email at billysmith at channelawesome.com. And who knows, maybe we'll read your question on the air and answer it. And so with that, we're going to jump right into the headlines, starting this week with Brian. Brian, take it away. Thank you, and welcome to these headlines across the multiverse. I actually had a pretty good week last week in terms of headlines, so hopefully I'm going to try to catch up with the major news before any other major news might break. First up, IDW and Hasbro have reached an agreement to extend their working relationship. IDW and Hasbro first started working together in 2005 on the Transformers title, this marking the 10th anniversary of the two companies working hand in hand. Ever since then, the titles have expanded and have been a major success in all different reigns. My Little Pony, G.I. Joe, and now Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, just to name a few. It looks like they're going to be working together real closely for the next several years, and good for on them. They've been some fantastic books being released by the company with Hasbro right back behind them. Moving on to Marvel. Marvel is getting set up for Secret Wars. They have a lot of different titles and battle worlds they're going to start announcing, but there was one that was supposed to be announced 
on the ABC's The View. Many people watched it, and the announcement didn't happen. It was bumped from the show for whatever reason we're still not sure of, but Marvel was able to push out the announcement to Mashables anyway of A-Force, an all-female Avengers title. This is spanning out of all the Avengers books, or some of the Avengers books, that will be ending by the time Secret Wars begins. So this is A-Force. The cover consists of almost every single female in the Marvel Universe showing off their classic or more recognizable costumes. This is actually written by, this is written by G. Willow Wilson who is behind the Miss Marvel title. This is the first time we've had an all-female Avengers book. Now they've been all-female adventures in an Avengers book, but this is the first time they've taken all the entire spotlight themselves. Honestly, this I think is a better announcement than the rumored Secret Wars Star Wars crossover. That's just me though. Moving on to DC, DC is having its own sort of, well, what do you call it? a relaunch of sorts, not a reboot, a relaunch of many of their titles come the end of Convergence. How many? Well, about 24 or so. Also, they're saying this is going to be the ending of the branding of the New 52, so a lot of the New 52 will be no longer on the cover, so I think I could be wrong. The titles that consist of this relaunch are very diverse. They're pushing for stories, individual stories, over continuity at this moment. But here are some of the titles that are follow. Batmite, a new Batman Beyond book. Black Canary getting her own solo series. Bizarro getting his own solo series. Constantine being renamed to Constantine Hellblazer. Cyborg with his first solo series ever as a character. Dark Universe, which is actually more of the rebranding of Justice League Dark. Dr. Fate getting his own line. Doomed, which takes place with Doomsday. Earth 2 Society, which will replace, obviously, Earth 2. Green Lantern Lost Army, a Harley Quinn Power Girl series. Interesting enough. Justice League 3001, which will replace Justice League 3000. A Justice League of an America book. Martian Manhunter getting his own solo series. Midnighter getting his own solo series. A title called Mystic U, but that might change before publication. Omega Men. The Return of Prez. You might have to look that one up if you're new fans. Red Hood and Arsenal book. Robin, Son of Batman. Section 8, which is a Hitman spinoff, and Starfire getting her own solo series. The last series is called We Are Robin, which doesn't actually have Robin in it. We're not really sure. A lot of the details are very scarce of these books. The entire creative teams, though, are available online. If I spent all the time talking about them, I would run out of time, unfortunately. But it's very interesting. Now, there actually might be even some more relaunches coming down the line later, not sure just yet. There might even be some new number ones of certain series. Those are just rumors at the moment. Well, that is all the time I have this week on the Multiverse Headlines. It's going to be a very busy couple of weeks now. A lot of new titles are going to get announced and new information is going to come from them. But that's enough for me. Now to turn everything over to my film collecting correspondent. Projection is John. I think he's got some good news for us this week. Go ahead, John. Thanks, Brian. Well, without further ado, let's dive into the movie bin and see what we've got this week. I couldn't begin today with anything other than the biggest breaking news, and since most of you have already probably heard about this by now, I'll just say it straight out. 
Spider-Man is officially going to be swinging his way into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. After months of spectacular Spider speculation, Sony and Marvel have finally made it official. And while I think most fans of the comics are excited about this news, the announcement raises some serious questions about the future of the MCU in general, and Spidey in particular. For starters, where does this leave all of Sony's planned spin-offs like Venom and the Sinister Six? Well, they're apparently still planning to make them, and since their deal gave them final creative control over their Spider IP, they still can, but uh, it might be a while yet. Is it still going to be Peter Parker under the Spider-Man mask, and if so, who's going to be playing him? For now, the answer to the first half of that question appears to be yes, which doesn't surprise me even if it does disappoint the Miles Morales fans out there. As for the second half, well, all we know for sure is that it's not Andrew Garfield and that Sony is apparently looking for an actual teenager this time around. Will the new Spidey have any continuity with the two previous movie franchises? Apparently not. When will he make his debut? Odds are it'll be in Captain America Civil War, which only makes sense given the comic storyline upon which it's based. What does this do to all of Marvel's carefully laid plans after their big announcement? Well, it pushes a few things back, of course, as they have to make room for a new solo Spider-Man movie after his Captain America premiere, so expect a few of those release dates to be pushed back and shuffled around. As for how this affects the storyline for things like, say, Infinity Wars or anything like that, well, your guess is as good as mine. You can expect to hear a lot of Spider-Man related news in the coming months slash years, so stay tuned. I'll be bringing it to you. Jumping from superheroes to reality and from the big screen to the small, I'm sure a great many of our listeners out there have been, like me, longtime viewers of The Daily Show. But even if you have not, I'm sure you've been aware of it as the satirical voice of Jon Stewart skewered the latest headlines over the past 17 years, eventually spinning off into the Colbert Rapport, and if not spinning off, at least inspiring last week tonight with Jon Oliver. Personally, it's hard for me to imagine The Daily Show without Jon Stewart, but apparently soon we're going to have to. Just a few episodes ago, Stewart officially announced at the end of his show that he would be stepping down from his role as The Daily Show anchor. When that will happen, who will take over for him, and where he will go from here is unclear. All I can say is that he will be greatly missed, and I think perhaps he's wise to be going out on a career high note instead of dragging the joke out too long. As long as we're still talking about the small screen for a moment, let's talk about a potentially very exciting development from two of the most beloved ends in nerddom, Netflix and Nintendo. It appears that the streaming service wants to expand its lineup of original programming to include Fantasy Adventure Fair, and that means it's looking to adapt one of the most beloved franchises in video game history. That's right guys, The Legend of Zelda is being developed as a live-action television series for Netflix, which describes it as Game of Thrones for families. I am very excited by this one, and I can't wait to see what they come up with, even if it will take quite a bit of effort to top the old cartoon series. What? You didn't like that version? Well, excuse me, princess! Sorry, I... And last but not least, it looks like one of Hollywood's many much-delayed live-action anime adaptations might finally be getting off the ground. No, it's not Akira, put down your pitchforks. This time, it's Robotech, the famous and rather controversial Carl Masek American dub slash reimagining of Superdimensional Fortress Macross. 
The project has been kicking around Hollywood practically since the original show was airing on Saturday mornings in the 80s, but this time, the producers behind the two 300 movies and the screenwriter for G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra are behind it. Now, normally I would join the pitchfork-wielding brigade, but honestly, if there's one anime that could work as an American live-action remake, it would be Robotech slash Macross. And considering that many credit the Massacred original as what got them into anime in the first place, the nostalgia factor for this one is still pretty high for a lot of people. I guess we'll just have to wait and see whether Hollywood understands the power of protoculture, or whether this one will fail to transform into a blockbuster. And that's it for your movie news. Now I turn things over to our tabletop gaming guru and all-around queen geek, Skyblaze. Take it away. Hello, and welcome back to the mysterious lands of rolling dice and scribbling pencils. Yes, it is time for the tabletop news. First of the new year. Well, first of all, it seems like someone really isn't happy with Wizards of the Coast. Video game developer Ferus Urquhart, part of the dev team for Obsidian Entertainment, has had a few choice words to say about the direction that Dungeons & Dragons has been going in. In particular, he says it's lost its sense of direction, which he attributes in part to Wizards of the Coast owners Hasbro, who he blames for being too focused on mar marketing and not on the product. Well, since this is a man who has worked on several D&D computer games, including titles such as Neverwinter Nights 2, his opinion isn't quite as easy to dismiss as some execs at Hasbro may like. On the other hand, since Obsidian recently snubbed Wizards of the Coast licensing agreement and started making Pathfinder-based games for Paizo, maybe he's just trying to keep his new bosses happy. Next, Evil Hat Productions has released a revised edition of the critically acclaimed RPG Monster of the Week in PDF format. For those who are not familiar with this game, it is a supernatural themed game with a setting that has been described as somewhere between X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Evil Hat have also managed to earn themselves brownie points among their fans since they've given all documented buyers of the original edition a voucher for a free copy of the PDF of the revised edition. Good show! The One Ring role-playing game has announced its new supplement, Ruins of the North, will be available soon. The announcement came complete with a full-size picture of the glorious wraparound art cover, which was drawn and painted by John Hodgson. The announcement describes the supplement as trying to convey a tone of fallen grandeur. It's said to contain six ready-to-play adventures, which can be played separately, or linked together as an epic narrative. The Conan board game by Monolith Games has exceeded its Kickstarter goal by, um, quite a bit. The campaign needed $80,000 to reach its target, but the small hurricane of fan enthusiasm has meant it zoomed right past its goal to a total of over $2 million. $2 million! This means that the game will come with a truly dizzying amount of maps, figurines and other goodies. Monolith estimates delivery of the game to backers sometime in October of this year. In related news, Modophius Entertainment have announced the release of their Conan RPG. It's being built around a 2D20 system designed by former Star Wars Edge of the Empire developer Jay Little. Modophius say that they plan for the game to reflect the style and tone of the original Pulp Adventures by Robert E. Howard. The game is expected to be released early this autumn. And finally, the Storyteller's Thesaurus of Fantasy, Sci-Fi and Horror has been released for distribution. 
This is a system-neutral handbook designed to help both prospective game masters and writers get their head around how to create worlds, characters and plot for stories or games. It's available from Troll Lord Games online store in both digital and print versions. That's all for me for now, so I'll hand you over to Kat for the anime news. Thanks Skyblaze. Well, it's with great sadness that we must report the death of Rooster Teeth Monty Ohm. He gained notoriety after joining the Red vs. Blue production team in 2010. In late 2012, he began work on his own creation, Ruby, which would debut online of July the next year. Ruby became a viral hit and would go on to win the 2014 International Academy of Web Television Award for Best Animated Series and the 2014 Steamy Award for Best Animated Series, with Jeff Williams, the composer of Ruby's soundtrack, winning the award for Best Original Score. Ohm's death came about after he suffered an allergic reaction to a medical procedure. He was comatose for 10 days before he passed away. He was 33. No news yet on the future of Ruby, though I will be sure to pass along any information that becomes available. The March issue of Beisatsu Shonen Magazine has announced that the Escape from Walled City Attack on Titan Real Escape game is coming to New York. Real Escape is basically a LARP in which you play a trainee whose graduation to the Survey Corps is interrupted by a Titan attack. You have to solve puzzles to get items and passwords needed in order to escape in one hour's time. The immersive event has already been held in the U.S. and San Francisco this month, and will head to Los Angeles on March 21st at the Weingart Stadium, and will be in New York on April 11th at the Richmond County Bank Ballpark. Advanced tickets are $30, and knowledge of the Attack on Titan anime or manga is not necessary. Viz Media has announced that it has been named the Master Merchandise Licensee for the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure anime series. Starting sometime this year, Viz will be releasing a variety of products based on the anime, to which thousands of fanboys and fangirls yelled, FINALLY, at the sky. It took ages for us to get JoJo here in the US. In fact, we're finally getting the first arc of the manga this month, with the second arc starting in March, even though the third arc has been in print here since 2005. Whatever. With the popularity of the anime finally taking hold here in the US, now JoJo fans can finally enjoy the perks of being in a fandom, which includes getting to buy some really awesome stuff! Deadline is reporting that the producers Gianni Nunari and Mark Canton have hired 300 and G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra's Michael Gordon to write a script for the proposed live-action Robotech film, and are considering Mama's Andy Muschietti as director. Like other live-action ventures, this particular project has been in and out of stalled status for years. So I guess only time will tell if anything actually comes of a new script. My guess is no. And finally, on the Ghibli front, the studio's former president Suzuki Toshio recently stated on a talk show that the studio is open but not currently working on any projects. He's quoted as saying, We're worrying about what to make next. When you think about the current state of the world, it's hard to know what to make. It makes me remember that movies aren't something to make, but something to watch. Watching and reacting to a film is fun. However, as I think this, the thought of, what are you going to do, keeps chasing after me. I'm not sure if no news is good news in this case, because at least they're open, which is obviously better than being closed, but they've really been producing a lot in the last few years, so it's strange for them not to be working on anything at all. In any case, if you're a Ghibli fan and have been wanting to add to your collection, Tales from Earthsea, Pompoco, and Porco Rosso all came out on Blu-ray last week, so pick up a copy now. And that's all I've got going on in the anime and manga world. Over to you, Dr. Gonzo. All right, and we are back. And this week we have, well, for the last month, we have been pestered to no end about the Legend of Korra finale because we have several self-professed huge Avatar fans among our staff. And the listener base has been just chomping at the bit to find out what what we thought of the last season of Legend of Korra and the finale thereof. 
Uh, full disclosure, I have not had a chance to watch the last season, uh, but Facebook has been uh, Facebook and Tumblr have been a buzz about it for so long that I think I have a Cliff's Notes idea of what happened. But Brian and Cat, you both actually managed to to watch the thing the whole way through, so. Let's, uh, the lion's share of the conversation will fall to you. So, uh, for those of us who have not been able to keep up with Legend of Korra, just give us a bit of a, bit of a Cliff's Notes on what the story arc this season was. Um, there was a lot of running around and war. It's lots and lots of war. So, so basically, the third book ended with uh, some not-so-great things happening, uh, including the Queen of the Earth Kingdom being really kind of viciously murdered um, and Korra almost dying and being like tr- like traumatized and kind of paralyzed and uh, it was just all kinds of bad juju um, and so this season sort of picks up a few years later uh, there's a nice little time skip and they flash back to kind of let you know what's going on but basically Korra really struggled to get back into being the Avatar, and um, yeah, it, it was not fun for Korra. And at the same time, um, one of uh, Sulin Beifong's uh, protégés, uh, Kuvira, has been going around basically reuniting the entire Earth Kingdom in a really horrible dictatorship sort of way. And... Uh, that's kind of where we come in with Kuvira basically going around bullying all of the Earth Kingdom under her iron fist and uh, Korra just sort of being missing and running off and being by herself trying to get her shit together. I mean, that sounds yeah, about so right. There was also a giant robot. There, there's so many robots, but the giant one is like, holy shit. <laughs> I'd say it was just, to me, it was a very odd season. Like, I was very middle of the road. But I've been in the middle of the road a lot of the TV shows I watch nowadays. It's probably because I'm getting old. Well, one, one, one pattern of... If there's one thing that I've noticed in American television is that when you know that the coming season is going to be your last, you tend to go big. So I think the, I think the giant robot was like, you know what? This is our last season. We're not going to get to do this... We're not going to do this any, get to do this anywhere else. Fuck pretty it. Much. Let's just put it in the goddamn Gundam. A, a Gundam that you metal bend in order to work. It, it was pretty crazy. Um... It, it brings up really interesting mm. themes of um, the escalation of technology and uh, basically an arms race, all of which are, like, sort of weird for an Avatar show to have. This season was really nothing like any previous season because it was so heavy with technology and, and it was very different, very, very different. Now, one thing that I want to ask... Um, of course, this this season is the first to be distributed entirely uh, online without being shown on air. So, uh, as, as, aside from aside from the commercials, which Kat has already made her thoughts very clear on, uh, did you notice anything anything different uh, about this show, content or tone wise, now versus when it was broadcast on television? Um, this season was pretty dark. Like the the themes of it were way heavier and more geared towards an older audience than I think short of some of the end of the last season of, of the book three, we didn't really see stuff like this. Um, for example, giant Mecca, like going kind of Gundam and maybe a little Ava on us was, it was kind of out of left field and it was, it was a lot of destruction. 
a lot of destruction. A lot of things kind of went, and I mean, yeah, these were very mature source sort of storylines, and one of the things that sort of didn't bother, didn't well, kind of bothered me is that they tried to make sort of Kavir like they were doing a lot of war analogies. But instead of saying like, okay, this is definitely an analogy of what happened during World War One, but with a little bit of an Eastern uh, or yeah, an Eastern twist to it, with metal, with bending and stuff like that. But then it was like, well, yeah, but that's also World War Two, and then you got Korea over. There. Like I felt like they had a lot of analogies, but they just didn't know what to do with them, so they threw them all in like one storyline. Like at one point they mentioned that off camera, like we take our dissenters to uh, re-education camps. I'm like. You do what in the what what? Yeah, that was a little scary, <laughs> but honestly, that wasn't so weird for this show because Lake Lao Guy. <laughs> um, uh, okay, you'll have to explain that. That was one from actually the second season of um, Avatar The Last Airbender, where basically they have like an underground uh, brainwashing facility. Okay, all right. I yeah, it was really fucking weird. <laughs> And then Jet dies? I don't know. It wasn't very clear. <laughs> Question mark. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of throwbacks to Avatar The Last Airbender, one of the things that set the internet ablaze was the revelation that uh, a member of the old gang was going to be reappearing. And uh, I, I have to ask, how uh, how 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 is Toph Beifong? Oh, Toph is the toffiest Toph to ever Toph. Toph is amazing. It's just, it's just Toph, a little older, kind of. Yeah, it's it's like an older, <laughs> crankier version of Toph, and it's just her being just very Toph. Like Korra basically ends up in in the swamp where uh, Toph has been hanging out for whatever reason, and um, and she's like, "I think you're meant to train me," and Toph's just like, "Ah, eh, whatever." It's like you're, yeah, it was like, no, I'm not. You're actually ruining the mood. Go away. <laughs> and she basically just like smacks Cora around for a little while and uh, introduces her to like it's it's weird that basically Toph makes Cora more spiritually aware um, via the the roots and everything from all these spirit vines that are coming out of the swamp. But it's it's mostly just Toph beating her up a little bit, and then um, Toph does eventually come back in a second time and spend some time with her daughters, who are, you know, like, basically there's Beifong drama, and the Beifong drama goes all throughout seasons three and four, and it's just the right amount of drama. But, but, um, not one of the old guard, but you do finally get to see the Fire Lord, uh, which is just something we've been like, are we ever going to see Zuko's daughter in this fucking show or not? And you do finally get to see Fire Lord Izumi, and she's just like, just sort of there, sort of stern, and you're like, okay, okay. Yeah, it was it was because like we have to get the council. She's like, I am on that. Hi everyone. <laughs> like we're not gonna talk to you. Oh, like it was very like a lot of secondary characters you expect to show up didn't show up or they showed up like as a background sort of situation because you had so much other sort of crap going on you know you had, you had the, the stories of Bolin and girlfriend number seven I forgot her name already shit Opal thank you Opal so you had like because they were they were on the outs because Bolin got suckered into uh, Kavira's campaign he's like no we're doing good I'm like oh good we have idiot Bolin back. <laughs> I thought we got rid of you, but no, you're still here. Oh, but he's 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 so he tries, and I, I like the way that he sort of makes up for being an idiot. And 
And honestly, the best thing about this entire season was Varric growing a conscience. Varric growing his own version of a conscience. <laughs> the head voices are talking to me again. <laughs> <laughs> He's so crazy. Oh. I've made a bomb. You've done what? <laughs> uh, it's like, no, I'm going to blow myself up. No, you can turn it off. No. Did you hear me? I'm going to blow myself up. Oh, I'll see dear. you on the other side, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> just bowling going no 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 no! i don't want to die <laughs> like varick and bolin hanging out was kind of it, it, it's it's a different feel than they've had before and it was just sort of fun even though like they're realizing oh god we both did some really stupid shit we've got to make up for that somehow indeed indeed you do i'm gonna build her a mega weapon mm, no <laughs> Ah, oh, Kuvira was an interesting villain. I liked her as a villain. I did enjoy her a little bit. Only because she was a villain that wasn't like, I'm evil, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, she she had a motivation. You know, you may consider it a wrong motivation, but it was at least a motivation nonetheless. It, it, it's sort of interesting how all of the, the villains of these, sh- the, these past seasons have all sort of had their own weird good intentions... And they just completely go about it the utterly wrong way. Like, Amon genuinely, in his own messed up way, wanted equality. And, uh, and Kuvira wants... Um, she wanted, I think, order and the, like, bring the Earth Kingdom back to its original yeah, she, prowess. She wanted, like, but under her own yeah, rule. And she wanted, it had to be all Earth Kingdom, so Republic City had to go. Yeah, she wanted unity and the restoration of the Earth Kingdom. And you're like, that sounds like a great thing until you start... Um, Doing really bad stuff. Well, yeah, for, it's like forcing villagers and things, villages to join. If you don't join, you're gonna starve. And like, oh. Oh well. <laughs> or yeah. Republic, or in terms of Republic cities, like Republic City technically didn't do anything wrong, but she's like, no, that's Earth Kingdom land. Fuck off. I have a giant robot with a mega weapon cannon. <laughs> We've got to talk about that mecha. The the weirdest, just craziest thing is the escalation of technology. It's so weird to look at. It was hard enough to grasp the concept of like a hundred years have passed, and this is how the technology has advanced from Avatar to to Korra, and then to see it go from like oh, uh, like cars, and we're building robots, to we have a fucking Gundam, and it has a mega laser spirit cannon and everything is destroyed it, yeah because it was you saw like i think in the earlier seasons they were sort of building up like i'm making sort of these mecha suits and they they had tanks before so tanks is not like super surprising to me but the mecha suits is sort of a it was sort of a stretch to get to where they are now did you have battalions of them but yeah the robot the mecha i don't i really wish there was a scene that tried to explain that. And it could have just been Kuvira going, oh, we need something. I want to build a giant robot. Everyone look at her going, what? Going, are you going to Are you gonna argue with me? No, all right, she wants a giant robot. Let's give her a giant robot. Do you guys have any problems? No, I don't have any problems. <laughs> problems? No, there's no problems here. Whatever you want, my lady. So, but yeah, it was a, it's a leap. Like, I can't, I want to see the leap. Like, because where do you go from... Tank battalions or small mecha suits to giant robot. There's no in like there has to be an in between somewhere. 
Like, you can't just go from a small robot to a giant robot. There has to be, like, a medium size somewhere along the lines, or, I don't know, one with four arms, but not, you know, humongous, not Pacific Rim yeah, size. Yeah, it was very Pacific Rimmy. And you could almost pass it off as, oh, well, they're metal benders. It, do- it makes sense that they could construct something like this, except it's made out of platinum. Or at least a, the exterior is made out of platinum, which yeah, they... Yeah, yeah, they said the exterior mm, was made out of platinum, so people couldn't metal bin inside of it. And I was like, oh, you clever, clever. It, and then... But yeah, the inside was all metal they, bending. They've also sort of gone all on and said, okay, well, probably the two smartest inventors in this entire world are Asami and Varric, and neither of them knew about this giant fucking thing, so are you going to try and convince us that Batar Jr. designed that? That would actually kind of make sense, though. Like, he designed it, and he was like, what would be totally outrageous and prove to my family that I'm better than them? And then it's just, like, a big, giant dick. <laughs> Just one hand. One hand is constantly in the middle finger position, just <laughs> going around the countryside. Fuck you, mom. And the other thing is that, like, I also felt like because they had like this huge leap of technologies that the other side was like, we're going to give another huge leap of technology too in these hummingbird flying plane things that only two of them actually got used, and one, and they both got destroyed, and then Asami's father, sad face, die. Which I. I knew that was going to happen. The moment Asami's storyline started with her father and then reconciling, I'm like, he's dead by the end of the series. No kidding. It's just the predictability of television, but you're like, dude, there there are actually ways to reconcile with, you know, um, your family other than them dying for you. Like, God, this show is such an anime. Like, it is such an anime. (laughs) Holy crap. I just, I saw it coming. I'm just... And I'm going to push her eject button. Goodbye, Asami. I'm like, you dick, you have an eject button too. The only way it could be more like as an anime is if Batar Jr. also sacrificed himself. To like, he'd be like, oh, she didn't really love me. And and now I have nothing worth living for. So I'm going to protect the people who did love me after all. (laughs) I wonder whatever happens to him. That's that's something I feel like I kind of wanted to know. Hey... What went on there? I want some closure I'm with that. I'm pretty sure he was... Yeah, he was arrested. I'm... <laughs> I mean, he was probably taken back to his home city and then maybe forgiven later on. But there's like, you... You built a lot of stuff and did a lot of bad things. There's there's gonna be some time for stuff to hear. You, there's not a slap on the wrist situation. <laughs> like, it may be his family, but I still wanna be, wouldn't want to be imprisoned under a bayfong. <laughs> no, that would be terrible. <laughs> But that would be probably equal punishment to starting a world war. <laughs> like, man. You have to be imprisoned by your mother. Damn it! <laughs> Could this day get any worse? <laughs> Poor guy. I just feel so sorry for him. Because it really feels like he really, really genuinely believed every crazy word that came out of her mouth. And he did it all for love. And it's so hard to judge whether or not she even really loved him back. I think she did in her own way, but her it, the whole thing with her, though, is that love was secondary to her main Right. Role. And they I think they kept it, like, just a little too ambiguous for me. And, like, I just, I want to know if you, like, I don't know. Man, man, well, she she survived, weirdly enough. She's, like, the first villain, I think, to survive. Oh. No, I take that back. Last villain who made a random cameo. Uh, survived as well so that was a it was kind of an interesting not quite a redemption story for um zahir that's his name 
um, not quite a redemption story for Zaheer, but it proved that he was, even though he was not the nicest person in the world because, uh, um, anarchy, but, um, he, he knew some stuff and that information was valuable uh, and it was useful enough for Korra that, you know, she actually needed him, which is really weird to think about. A little bit. I also don't like, because you mean, you say like she helped, he, he helped out Korra. I not sure how I felt like overall with Korra these last couple of seasons. Cause I feel like, cause there's a thing I watch a lot. Cause I watch too much Shaw Brothers Shaolin uh, Kung Fu films. And there's the idea and the concept, Jackie Chan uses it a lot in his films, of starting from zero and working your way up. And the whole idea is that the hero starts at zero, but he eventually gets like final boss level here, Kavira. Like they've earned that spot and they are the hero of the said story. But it feels like Korra started at zero at the first part of every season she's been in to the point where I was like, what kind of crazy coinkadink thing's gonna happen to you now that you have to restart everything over again yeah, it has been a lot like that where she has way way failed more than she's succeeded at any given thing and i think that's supposed to create like more dramatic tension for her and give her a, a more like a rounder storyline i guess but it's actually just been kind of annoying um because it's it's like how many how many times do I have to watch her learn the same lessons over and over again? And getting your ass beat by the main villain and, in the middle of the season. I'm like, you're gonna you're gonna get your win back, right? Eventually, right? right? You're right? gonna have self-esteem, right? <laughs> right? Because it was just sometimes it was just depressing to watch her because she was just so down on herself. Um, and it was just kind of excruciating to watch her feel like such a failure all the time it didn't make for a whole lot of happy watching no <laughs> sad face all right so um the the, the big the, the one thing that i want to cl- close this close this discussion out on is the uh the the big thing that everybody was really going gaga about over uh on facebook and tumblr after the show ended and that's uh, actually the very ending uh, the sort of ship tease, if not outright, uh, confirmation between Korra and Asami. So, Cat, uh, why don't you uh, give those of us, the six of us who didn't see this whole thing go down, uh, a rundown of what happened and what it means for the overall fandom? Well, I found out about the final shipping, the Korasami confirmation, the same way that. Most other people did. I didn't watch the episode. I went onto Facebook and had all of my friends screaming, Oh my god, it's canon! Um, and yeah, that happened. It actually happened. This is, it's, it's insane, but it happened. So basically, they get through this, the whole season, um, and they sort of have maybe slight hints at it where Korra seems to rely more on Asami and they have a little tiff but they apologize like they always do but they sort of start it with um when Korra is gone for those three years recovering uh the only person that she actually writes to the entire time is Asami because she doesn't really know what to say to anybody else and that sort of hints that she can actually talk to Asami and she can open up to her like she can't 
at all for other people. Um, and, and then they get to the end and Cora, by the end of the, the, the season has kind of accidentally created another spirit portal. It's, it's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. And, um, well, that's what happens when you blow up giant. Yeah, apparently, because there's just so much spirit energy coming out of that giant mecha. And um, everything's happened, and they've won, and they're like, dude, I could really use a vacation. And they're like, me too. So they just, like, let's do it. Let's go hang out in the spirit world and take a vacation. And they sort of walk hand in hand into the spirit world. And everybody just flips their shit because, oh my god, they turn to each other and just sort of, like, stare dramatically. And then it, like, it fades to white, basically, before you can potentially see them kiss or anything like that but um like they they've confirmed it on you know all the different social medias that that's I'm, a thing and it's amazing yeah it's i'm, I'm probably going to be hated but when i saw the scene i was like oh that's kind of cool because i was like all right you can take it either way you could be oh they're really good friends or yes there it is uh you know it's canon or whatever you want it's like that's that's kind of cool of them i wish they could have win you know just said yes and went all the way then, like, the next day, it was like, oh, hey, guys, creators of the series, what you originally thought about them? Yeah, it's true. Canon, baby. High five. And then everybody else lost their <laughs> shit. And I was like, oh, I just started laughing. I was like, that's hilarious. <laughs> Mostly because I I don't get into shipping wars because I don't do a lot of fanfic or anything like that. But, man, even I saw the shipping. I saw, I saw ships go out and cannons were ready and just everyone was firing. I was like, oh, this is... This is hilarious. I want more of this. It, it, it's honestly really amazing because the the shipping and the romance has honestly been the weakest part of this entire, the duration of Korra. The worst part has been like the forced romances. And, and I feel like it, it sort of justifies it a little tiny, tiny bit that look look see what happens when you force a romance it doesn't work out because that wasn't the right person and it kind of feels like yeah the reason why none of this this ship and that ship and none of these things worked out was because neither nobody had found the right person yet and then Bolin ends up with Opal and Korra ends up with Usami and Mako ends up alone <laughs> and Mako ends up with Mako? No, no, he ends up... Mako ends up with Lefty. <laughs> no, it's even better. Mako ends up with Prince Wu. That's right, Prince Wu. Oh, my God, Prince Wu. I didn't hear about that oh one. Oh, my God. Well, Prince Wu, he's his bodyguard. <clears throat> Prince Wu is basically the person who was supposed to take over the uh, the Earth Kingdom after the passing of the, uh, the uh, previous season, the Earth Queen, and he basically has the throne usurped under him by Kuvira, but he's like this obnoxious kind of like teenager character who doesn't understand anything about responsibility, um, and he basically learns valuable life lessons throughout the series, but the entire time making Mako's life miserable. <laughs> Like the best line is is Mago being like, "Look, pee by yourself for once," <laughs> and then Prince Wu gets kidnapped. <laughs> He's like, "The one time I didn't watch him pee." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <clears throat> but yeah, like the the shipping was. Whew, it's been intense for quite a few seasons, and to have it pay off in in a really, really sort of groundbreaking way, where this is like 
if you want to call it an interracial couple, you would probably be right. And lesbians in a cartoon in America, like that's kind of really mind blowing. So do you think we'll do you think we'll see more uh, sort of sort of more? What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want I, I don't want to use shipping just because I fucking hate that word. More <laughs> diversity. There's the key word. <laughs> pairings. More, more, yeah, more diverse pairings in uh, in in mainstream uh, kids cartoons in the future because of this do you think that, that this is sort of set a precedent or do you think this is sort of just kind of a risk that may be paid off because of the unique distribution method that this last season had I I want to lean a little bit towards the latter um, it this series definitely was able to get away with a lot more uh, by not airing on TV um, and uh, and honestly it was playing to its fandom. It knew what the fans wanted, and it <laughs> maybe not all the fans, but it it just it did something monumental. But I don't know that other shows are going to be able to do something like that. Uh, I don't think a lot of shows have the same risk-taking creative team that's behind Avatar or uh, Korra. Well, both. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that they're going to have the advantage of having it online and being able to get away with more because not as many kids are watching it. But I hope that they will. I do genuinely hope because I feel like there are a couple of cartoons out there that are, you know, taking baby steps towards recognizing the new that social norms. The, the new social norms of there are gays out there and there are lesbians out there and there's all kinds of crazy, awesome, awesome stuff in this world. And um, baby steps, baby steps. Um, but honestly, I think a lot of other networks probably wouldn't be willing to take that risk just because of the backlash that they would receive from... So many kinds of people. I think what's and also what it is is that it's you see a lot of like well that's a good way of theorizing elderly gentlemen uh, in charge of networks, but a lot of them are slowly moving their way out. So we we get this nice nice little like you know preview of what can be, but it's still going to take some fresh younger blood who's been around for a little bit longer to come in and say this. Is what we need to do here. Go well to um, to, to, par to paraphrase. Steven, I know, I know, I know. Before you interrupt you, I know it's Sorry. Steven Universe. People's that's a show uh, people have been trying to push onto me that um, I have not been watching. But I know that's a show people are trying to get behind, and there, there's a few times they're trying to push a little bit to where where Cora kind of want, is, has ended up. But again, they're they're working with Cartoon Network, who's had recent reputations of not being what's the word? Oh, good <laughs> about treating their shows correctly. So you never really know. It's I you wanted to, and eventually you think yes, it will. You, we're just not really sure when that's going to be. And it, 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 it's like for every one really really excellent American cartoon, there's like thirty that are just miserable. Um, that just don't go above and beyond to challenge the intellect of young people. Um, so to have one that does it and makes strides forward with new social norms is is it it's going to be few and far between at first. But I think I, I hate to say this, but like in ten years maybe, 
we we can maybe see a few more. So it's going to take a few of those elderly gentlemen dying first. Yeah, I I, I hate to say it that not, way. Not but... dying, just saying, I'm old and rich now. I'm going to go retire in Malibu. I'm like, all right, see you later. Young generation, come. It is our chance No blood, now. no blood. Who the fuck are you? I'm Brian. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... Okay, but that's about all the time that we have for this week. So, as always, thank you for tuning in. We will see you guys next week when we are look back on uh, The Flash, uh, a rather surprising series. Uh, so, we've been covering television shows with some regularity lately, it seems. Well, because TV's starting to get kind of good again. <laughs> Except for season two of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, well, that's an argument for another table. But anyway, that's all the time that we have for this week. So, as always, I'm Dr. Gonzo. I'm the cat. I'm Brian. All right, we'll see you next week. Taco, play us out. <laughs> <laughs>